together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. To resist bot live. Hey y'all, it is November 7th, 2021. I'm your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome to everyone joining us from Podcastville and Streamland. We have a great show this week, as we have every week. We are going to be discussing voting rights. This was a big week. Politically, we had election day on Tuesday. Progressive candidate Michelle Wu won um, the mayor's race in Boston, and we had Trump back conservative Glenn Youngkin, who won the governor's race in Virginia and everything in between. So let's get started. We always look forward to our Professor Buzzkill moments. So we will have Joe Coolhill with us, joining us with the background of how we got here and what the historian's take is on where we are with voting rights right now. With no further ado, I am going to bring up our panel and say a hearty good afternoon to everyone. We are joined by Athena Foulet, as I mentioned before, Joseph Kuhill, and Christine Liu. Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Morning. Still morning for me. <laughs> good mor- Good afternoon. <laughs> big week. Big week. Yeah, indeed. A lot of folks felt like the wind got knocked out of their sails this week, but um, we have some pretty good wins in the books, too. So I really appreciate the chance to have this important discussion. Boston getting a progressive ma- mayor was a big deal. St. Pete's. Yes. Pittsburgh. Joe. Congratulations. Yes. Pittsburgh, first black mayor. That's a that's a huge deal. As a lot of people know, Pittsburgh, or maybe nobody knows Pittsburgh is my second home. So exciting stuff. With all the changes we've dealt with, especially in the last few years, we're looking at a lot of apathy. A lot of people who just don't know and their ignorance is being banked on. There's also people who've just tapped out of voting. As soon as you say voting, they just tune out. But voters' rights affects all people. It's voters' rights now. It's voters' rights, comes reproductive rights, comes religious freedoms, and so on and so forth. So it's not as though all of these things are disconnected. Athena, thank you this morning. You are joining us. You're going to man our comments again this week. Happy to do so. Yes, everyone, please feel free to pop in some thoughts, get our discussion going, ask any questions you might have for us and our panelists and contributors. And can you give us a little background on the petitions that are related to voting rights that we have on the bot right now that are active? Absolutely. So one of the biggest voting rights requests that we have is short and sweet. We have over 5,000 signers to asking their elected officials to honor John Lewis and pass H.R. 4. At 5,600 sign-ons, that's the biggest one we have for this at the moment. It's pretty simple. It says you have the power to truly honor the life of John Lewis today. And H.R. 4 is the bill to to restore the Voting Rights Act sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. So take it up and pass it. Anything less is empty words. I'll drop that link in the various chats to sign on to that. You would just need to write sign R-N-E-D-Q-R. 
Um, a couple of other ones are a little bit more robust in terms of what they're talking about. There is one calling for the U.S. Senate vote yes on the Freedom to Vote Act, 162 signers for that. And this one actually breaks it down into like the three main asks of that act. And one is basically to emphasize voter access and election administration to give advanced voter access by implementing state best practices and voter registration election administrations to ensure that it's easy to exercise your freedom to vote regardless of where they live. The second point they bring up is election integrity. It's a measure to promote confidence in elections to stop bipartisan uh, election subversion and to protect against election interference, both foreign and domestic, which I think as we continue to peel that onion back, we're seeing just how uh, problematic that has, has become in our, some of our most recent elections. And the third point uh, that this particular petition talks about is civic participation and empowerment. So this section of the Voting Rights Act would prevent partisan manipulation of the redistrict redistricting process, which I hope is something we get to talk a, a little bit more about today, because that is definitely something that needs unpacking for our, our average listener. And last but not least, the third one is sort of a combination of the two of them. So the first one was passing John Lewis Voting Rights Act as to honor his memory, the other one was specifically outlining the Freedom to Vote Act. And the third middle ground one has about 21 signers so far, and it's to both houses of Congress. It talks a little bit about John Lewis's Voting Rights Act, as well as some federal voter reform now, indicating that 33 states have about 160 proposals to really suppress the vote this time, basically aimed to disenfranchise BIPOC voters. So uh, really pushing with urgency that both houses of Congress act to address that. Thanks so much, Athena. Christine, hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. All of that in between on the West Coast. Morning. How are you? Good. What I am excited about, I did a little dance when you mentioned Michelle Wu earlier in the opening. Being Taiwanese-American and being that she is Taiwanese-American, I waited until the next morning to see what time my mom would text me full of pride and links to all the articles, you know. And so that is actually, you know, in light of voter apathy that I definitely feel is out there, I'm particularly paying attention to the AAPI community because in the last 18 months, like we know, we've been subjected to a lot of anti-Asian sentiment. But as a result of that, the flip side of that, we've also seen an uh, increase in the awareness of needing to have our voice in the space, needing to turn up the vote, even though we make up a very small percentage of the population. What we are noticing in certain swing districts in the country, the AAPI vote absolutely does make a difference. And I think it's just a matter of education and um, really advocating within our community that we need to ally with other communities in getting behind things that we have a common goal and interest in. And, you know, voter protection is one of them. Even though it's not mentioned a lot, we, um, API are absolutely affected. We also get kicked off the voter rolls you know, mysteriously, right, when, when other folks do. There is not a lot of outreach in our local language for citizens who may not have English as their first language, but I've seen firsthand with my own parents, they have voted in every single election in the last couple years, including the midterms here in California, because California has done a really great job of localizing all the different uh, material and, you know, registration and the, the ballot, you know, information, all of that has been localized in different Asian languages. And so I'm excited actually to see if we can contribute our voice, wh however small it seems, to really make a difference um, in, in that margin of error in, in different parts of the country come midterms. Thanks. 
It's always exciting to see people of color and our groups represented. It's super exciting when they represent progressive ideals that are actually for us, that will that will benefit the community. So big win in Boston. Speaking of education, we have our resident professor, Joe, Professor Budskill. Hello. 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 How's everyone? I think it's important to know that there's one consistent thing about American political history is that voting rights have been continually restricted, and it's only through, frankly, eternal vigilance that changes are able to be made. Uh, All sorts of things happened in the 20th century and even in the 21st century that have caused us to take backward steps and the progress we have made. And it's very, very shocking what's going on right now. The restrictions, the poor application of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 is just un-American, and it is a betrayal of our history. Thanks, Joe. When we get to the Voters' Rights Act, as it was in the beginning, one of the things that is often talked about now is, by now, it was expected that we'd have our crap together. So the fact that we don't, What does the uh, historian community feel about that? Like, what is the collective conversation around that right now? Well, for those who don't know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was essential because what had happened after between the end of Reconstruction and until 1964-5 was that voting rights were technically granted to a great many communities, especially African-American communities, especially African-dominated places, especially in the South. But states and localities in different counties went to extensive lengths to work around the restriction that bans voting discrimination based on race. So they did all sorts of things, including literacy tests, a competency tests, grandfather clause, so all kinds of things, so that the local election official at the polling booth was in charge, essentially, of who got to vote and who didn't. A literacy test or any kind of test could be applied whenever that person wanted, and it could be applied to whomever that person wanted to be. Well, those things were swept away by the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which not only made all those things illegal, but also did a very important thing. It, it said to certain states and certain localities, your history of voter discrimination on race is, has been so bad for so long that in order for any changes in your state election laws to be made at the state level, which is, of course, where all election laws are made, those have to be cleared first by the Justice Department in Washington. So Texas and Mississippi and, all, and a, a great number of other states had to say, we want to change our election laws. And unlike other states, they had to ask the Justice Department for permission first. That's key element to this. Now, then, and that worked very, very well for the late 60s and 70s. Voting registrations went way up. Uh, even the allocation of resources for different parts of the country were improved, right? The, the fair distribution of resources because more people could vote, right? What's happened in the last five years is that five or six, seven years is that various court decisions have chipped away at the preclearance requirement of the 1965 Act, and states and localities and counties have sort of replaced literacy tests and replaced other discriminatory measures with things that, frankly, were never even considered 
that might be a possibility in 1965, including closing down polling places, merging polling places into one distant polling place so that it's difficult for people to get to. It, it seems that no matter how often the, the government tries to enforce voting rights, tries to make voting accessible and easy for people, states and localities will do everything they can. They will nitpick and find various legal ways or various um, unsavory ways in order to stop people from actually voting. So we don't have literacy tests anymore, but now we have Texas closing down polling stations. We don't have grandfather clause, but now we have all sorts of other restrictions being placed. So the, it's almost as if the federal government has to continually play catch up because the Supreme Court removed the preclearance requirements in 2013 and 2017, and so states can go on their own and tinker with the system yet again. They tinkered with it after Reconstruction, and we got Jim Crow. They tinkered, and, and they were prevented from doing that in, in, from 1965 onwards, but the courts have decided in this century they're allowed to tinker with it again. And so there are folks who are tinkering back. Which brings us to our next guest, um, who I'm very excited. We have Deborah Cleaver joining us from um, Vote America, Long Distance Voter, and a litany of other organizations. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me. You've been busy. Not only from what is uh, being done from a political standpoint to attempt to suppress voters, but also when you're dealing with that, you deal with people who are um, who've who've kind of just lost lost interest. There's a lot of apathy. There are a lot of misconceptions. What is Vote America? What are you doing? What has been your plan of attack in the rolling back of voting rights? Sure. But first, I'm going to push back a little bit because one of the things that guides us at Vote America is that we reject outright the idea that people are apathetic and instead say that they are suppressed and that this narrative of people being apathetic is actually a conservative talking point that we are accidentally echoing because it's become the dominant talking point that like voters are apathetic, apathetic, apathetic. They're actually not apathetic. They are overwhelmed by voter suppression, because no one is apathetic about their future or their family or their lives. And so we started, and I should also, very brief background, I have been working at the intersection of technology and democracy since 2004, so about 17 years now, and I just keep starting new organizations. And the one you didn't mention is the one that I'm best known for, which is Vote.org. Like, I started Vote.org. So, like, people, people know my work if they don't know me, but starting in 2006, I would say to myself, if we reject the idea that people are apathetic and lean into the idea that they are actively just like overwhelmed and suppressed, what are we going to do to change that? So our our theory of change is that if, if you make voting more accessible, people will vote like in greater numbers and more consistently. And if I can name one group in America that knows we are right, it's the RNC and the GOP. They absolutely know if voting becomes more accessible, more people Oh, so what they do is they've been executing on this very smart 30-year strategic plan to make it exceptionally difficult to vote. And they're great at it. They're great. You know, Professor brought it up. Like, they rolled back the Voting Rights Act. 
Um, they attack the Help America Vote Act. Sometimes they just outright ignore the laws. Like Alabama just did not get around to like following the Motor Voter Act of 1993 until 2016. Just didn't get around until the DOJ got involved. But at Vote America, we are focused right now on one very specific thing, which is getting souls to the polls, like anything we can do to help people cast ballots. So we have our website where you can find just oodles of information, which gets overwhelming. So then we built this entire tool set to help guide you through like the 50 different processes for registering to vote, for getting an absentee ballot, for checking uh, your voter registration. And then we do a ton of proactive outreach to what is called uh, low and mid propensity voters. Those are people who have been modeled to be less likely to vote. So partisan groups ignore them entirely. And that is our bread and butter. We're like, who are the people in America who will vote if you just give them a little bit of assistance? Don't ignore them entirely. We do a lot of proactive outreach. And I should also say the, the one thing I'm really known for, you know, those text messages you get largely Largely my fault. In 2016, I was like, what if we buy cell phone numbers of people who are unregistered to vote and we just text them directly and say, hey, it's time for you to register to vote. And we had tremendous success with this. And in 2016, I predicted it would be the dominant tactic by 2020. And I will never be as right as I was in that 90 second pitch. We were in the, in the 2020 election. It became the running joke on social media that we were getting calls. And I think the funniest part about that was after the election, there were people I knew who were like, yeah, that was me calling you. It was I, I had a lot of girlfriends in Atlanta who were instrumental in flipping Georgia blue because of using the phone. Pass off to you for seeing the future. So what do you think the biggest obstacle, what do you think the biggest tool in suppression and what they're trying to do in rolling back rights? What do you think the biggest, the big gun is right now? Think like Buffy, every year there's the big bad. What do you think the big bad tactic is right now? Oh gosh. I mean, if I had to choose the big bad one right now that is keeping me up at night, I think Republicans have realized that voter suppression is not enough. Too many people are turning out to vote. I mean, we had record high turnout in 2018 and record high turnout in the 2020 during a pandemic, during a partisan attack on the post office. Like that's no longer working. The biggest attack right now is simply attacking the legitimacy of elections. Before votes are even counted, they start saying things like, if I don't win this election, it's because it was rigged. That is not only an attack on our voting rights, that is a fundamental attack on democracy and America. Like those are the underpinnings of our democracy that we get to vote and elect our leaders. And they're just like deciding that it's illegitimate and it's leading to violence at the polls. So I, I imagine you expected me to say like, voter ID or the lack of like election day registration or the fact that we vote on a work day or the fact that we vote in the winter. Why do we vote in the winter? It is snowing in half the country, half the states. But I would say, honestly, the one that's keeping me up at night, the one that is a hallmark of fascism, and I use that word intentionally, is simply delegitimizing elections. That is so insane. Wow. Sorry, I'm trying to be articulate right now. It's insane. It is feeding into the hands of hostile foreign powers like Russia. It is, you know, it is being supported by these like concerted propaganda efforts overseas. It is treasonous 
to do this. And it is a national security issue. Undermining the integrity of our election is a national security issue. And the Department of Homeland Security, which sucks billions of dollars from our budget every year, should be taking this a lot more seriously than they appear to be taking it. When you deal with that, and and believe it or not, I did not have a preconceived answer because you're the expert. So I, I I actually wanted to know what you thought. When when you think about the abuses at the poll outside absent, like the violence, because it has become a, a much more violent. I mean, we have January 6th that we can look back at as as sort of the the turning point of how bad it could get. So when you think about the abuses and injustices and attempted suppression that people have to deal with at the polls that may actually turn people away because they don't know their rights. What are activists doing? What are organizations like Vote America doing to make sure that there's support and education? Well, so first we have like the proactive messages that we'll send to people, which are like, here's your poll in place. Here are the rules. If you are in line, when polls close, stay there. You have the right to vote. But if I were going to name one thing that I'm especially proud of, and we piloted it last year, we had a text-based voter helpline so people could text in and uh, this is nerdy and it was cool but the text would go directly to a slack workspace where we had literally hundreds of trained volunteers and they would assign the message to themselves look up the answer respond in slack and then the answer would get texted back to the voter so in real time we were answering questions like they're closing the polls what do i do i've been in line for like six hours and we're like don't leave the line it is absolutely your right to cast a ballot you're in line or voters would text in and say the person at the at the polls says there's no record of me being registered to vote and we were like don't walk away use these words like i am entitled to a provisional ballot please give me a provisional ballot so in real time we were helping people at the polls and last year was a pilot we were only in a handful of states but next year we're going to go nationally on this one and You know, we work very closely with the election protection hotline. That's the phone based one. That's 866 our vote because it turns out not everyone wants to call. I don't know. People get shy about calling. So we were we very much leaned into like real time voter protection because you just have to guide people at the polls like, you know, their their IDs being rejected. And we're like, that's okay. Demand a provisional ballot and tomorrow go back. And so a lot of it is just like one to one assistance. But in, in my head, basically, what we all need to lean into is like, hold the line, do not back down. Like democracy is under attack. And we have all been conscripted to like fight back. I mean, we don't want to think about that. We want voting to be this mundane activity. But when people are trying this hard to keep you from casting a ballot, there's kind of a war going on. I mean, these people are trying to not just attack our democracy, eliminate it entirely. I think that's not, we don't acknowledge that enough. They're not trying to reduce democracy. They're trying to eliminate democracy. They no longer want us to vote, period, full stop. One of the things um, we had a conversation about with voter ID and that being a suppression tactic, and you mentioned that you actually feel like the, the larger suppression tactic is not having day of registration. Did you want to elaborate on that a bit? Yes. So. Voter ID is actually an idea that almost all Americans support, regardless of Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, you know, the seven of them. People actually want voter ID because it increases their confidence in the election. But in exchange for requiring people to show ID, we should have election day registration in every state. 
Uh, I think we have it right now in, I want to say, 15 states where we have, we have states where if you show up at the polls with a government-issued ID, you can register and vote on the same day. So my issue is that we have states that have voter ID laws and don't have election day registration. And one of the reasons I'm really not opposed to voter ID is that election day registration enfranchises far more people than voter ID disenfranchises. So when you roll out election day registration, you see record numbers of young people, people of color, lower income people actually vote because they can just show up at the polls instead of having these arbitrary deadlines that are often 30 days in advance. So my actual issue with voter ID is that the government doesn't provide it for free. So you have to pay for it. That is the definition of a poll tax. That is unconstitutional. I'm not going to like argue with like conservatives about this. Poll taxes are unconstitutional. So if they want voter ID for elections, then the government needs to provide an ID to all citizens. This is not complicated. And as soon as I start saying that the government should provide ID to all citizens, they lose their minds about how that's government interference. You can't win with these people. And I'm like, oh, so it's not about ID. Again, it's just about keeping people from voting. Because the second I say I'm fine with ID, they have a new issue with it. That's the point. I mean, at the end of it, we know that that's the actual point. I would like to bring up the rest of the panel, have them rejoin us. We've got a little Q&A time. Um, anyone who is watching, please feel free to send some comments. We don't want at the end to get bored. So make sure that you send in some questions, comments, and we will be happy to um, relay them to Deborah for you. Yeah, we have one question for you, Deborah. What can people do who are registered and show up for every election? What can they do to help others do the same? It's so straightforward. Remind your friends and family to vote. People need reminders. Um, and the, the most effective message comes from someone you know personally. I mean, I remind people. I know casually to vote. I remind my plumber to vote. Like I remind my semi-useless landlord to vote because you will never decrease turnout by reminding people to vote, you will only increase turnout. Text your friends. They get annoyed when I text them. They're much happier when you text them. Yes, I agree. And which is why it was so scary to hear that Texas was, make, was trying to advance laws saying that you can't caravan or like bring people to the polls at some point, because I agree that personal connection gets people to the polls more than anything. Uh, what would you have to say to folks who are in really solid blue states? So they say, well, I know my representative is going to vote the way I do. So there's nothing left for me to do. What kind of advice would you give them to stay engaged? Because clearly there's lots of work to get done. I, I tell people who are in solid red or blue states to find a group like Vote America to volunteer with. You know, you can send postcards, you can send text messages, you can make phone calls. Because even if you are in a solid red or blue state, the representatives from other states really impact your life. Um, an example, I live in California and Joe Manchin is currently holding my future and your future hostage. 10% of the entire country lives in California. Less than half a percentage of Americans live in West Virginia. So I spend a lot of time communicating with West Virginia voters about the importance of reaching out to their senator. Because like, I know a lot of times people in red and blue states are like, my vote doesn't matter. Everything's decided. And I'm like, unfortunately, we have federal officials who very much affect your life. 
And we have one question coming in from Facebook. Um, since Deborah's been involved for so long, what do you think about the postcard writing and does that help get people out? This volunteer was, I remember, writing tons of postcards to people in Georgia in 2020. It absolutely, like postcards are a great activity. They absolutely increase turnout. Uh, these handwritten messages are so much more effective than like what we could do. Like we could hire a printer and like send printed messages to people and those are effective. But the handwritten ones are about three times as effective. And there are some people who've like legitimately lost hope. No one's apathetic, but some people are losing hope. And just getting this handwritten message from someone else who cared enough to send a handwritten message like does a lot to lift up people's spirits. So keep sending those postcards. They're so important. They're so effective. Help the USPS while you're at it. Yes. Keep buying stamps too, because there's a partisan attack on the post office, which is uh, put that under the list of that shit, insane things that I just never thought I would see in my lifetime. Which we will be talking about the post office in the very near future, because that's a whole other thing. We talk a bit about marginalized communities that are suppressed. And when we look at this from the standpoint of people, we have two huge groups that just get pushed to the side, of course, incarcerated people and people with disabilities. What are activists doing to, or what, and even Vote America, we can uh, stick with Vote America specifically, what are some of the things being done to help these communities who do want to vote, but are being suppressed even when their sentence is over, it's not over, or who, because of a lack of accessibility or a million other things that may come up in just the in just the course of existing as a disabled person in America, what are some of the steps that are being taken to help these folks? I would say at Vote America, we're not yet doing enough to help these two groups. There are some national groups. My favorite for people who are incarcerated is called uh, Restore Your Vote, which is led by the Campaign Legal Center, because you're right, even after terms end, people are often disenfranchised. And a lot of people aren't told, like in the states where you can register to vote as soon as your probation or parole is over, no one lets you know. So there are a lot of states where that is the case, and just people with felony convictions assume that they simply will never be able to vote again. But I will say we need federal legislation around this issue. People who are incarcerated are counted in the census. Their physical body is used to increase representation in rural communities that they're not actually from in any way, but they're not allowed to vote in elections. That is our way of perpetuating the three-fifths compromise into modern times. There is no possible justification for not letting people who are in prison currently at the moment vote. We count them in the census. We use their bodies to increase representation in overwhelmingly white and rural counties. So the one elected official I can think of who really does a good job of talking about this is Bernie Sanders. He brings this up often. And there are two states, I believe, I know Maine is one of them. I think the other one is Vermont, where people who are in prison can vote because all citizens should be allowed to vote. This is so arbitrary and it's overwhelmingly racist that we don't let people who are incarcerated vote. And when we go to overwhelming racism, overwhelming acts of suppression, we can look at what's going on in North Carolina, this new North Carolina district map that was in the news this week that was just passed. 
that gives an edge to GOP voters, whereas the actual voting demographic in North Carolina, when you look at it, is um, somewhere split down the middle. What are the next steps in a situation like this? Unfortunately, it's going to be lawsuits. People like gerrymandering is simply cheating. It is allowing elected officials to choose their voters instead of the other way around. And if you look at the map, it's not an identifiable shape. It looks like a Rorschach test. They come up with these absolute insane shapes so that all of the black people, and it's it's generally black people, wind up in one small district. And I, you know, I don't understand why we continue to tolerate this. I mean, I know that Eric Holder disagrees with me on this one, but I'm like, why are we letting people and not computers draw maps? If we're going to tolerate bizarre shapes, then it would be easy enough to use like machine learning and census data to draw districts that actually are appropriately diverse. Yeah, the the maps, we're going to wind up in the courts and the maps show why these midterm elections and local elections are so important because it's your state ledge that draws those maps. And conservatives focus a ton of time and money on state ledge and Democrats don't. Like you have to pay attention to local elections. Sorry, what's going on in North Carolina just fills me with rage. They threaten to sue us like on a pretty regular basis. And we're like, eh, go for it. Knock yourselves out. There was there was a lawsuit filed Friday, so we'll be keeping our eye on on that. Let's talk about Texas, because I know there was a lot of work that you had done to combat suppression and rolling back of rights in Texas. I want the story. I definitely want the 2018 story. You, you want me to tell you the story of what we did in 2018? OK, this is so bless everyone's heart in Texas. So Texas law, Texas does not have online voter registration because online voter registration increases the, the number of young people and people of color who register to vote. So Texas lives in the dark ages. They live in the dark ages intentionally. They are an infuriating state to deal with because such a big state. But if you read the Texas election code, which I do for fun, you can see that it says that you are allowed to fax in your voter registration form, fax, a technology no one has used in 20 years, as long as you print and mail a copy within four days. So I was sitting around, this was actually when I was still at vote.org. And I was like, well, we have a voter registration tool and it would be really easy for us to integrate a fax API into the tool. So we did. We took our existing voter registration tool And we added support for taking a photograph of your manual signature, which we then used code to to put your signature in the correct part of the voter registration form. And then we faxed the form in programmatically uh, using the HelloFax API. And then we had an on-the-ground printer in Austin. And every 12 hours, we would email him a PDF of all the voter registration forms for a county, and then he would overnight them. To the county. So we we created an online voter registration workflow, which for voters was online, but for the local election officials, nothing changed. They still received a paper copy of a voter registration form. We absolutely met the letter of the law. I mean, we are lawyered up, you know. So like when we're when we're being creative in this way, we know we're meeting the law. The Texas, and then we actually went to Texas and drove around and introduced ourselves to all the county clerks and let them know this was coming. And they were like, well, this is great because the forms will be legible. They'll be typed, everything but the signature. So this is fine. The then Texas Secretary of State lost his mind, like just lost his mind. And he 
he like hit the press saying that he knows that the law says uh, that you can fax in a form as long as you send a copy within four days, but he's always interpreted the word copy to mean an original. And I have a sense of humor. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, short of mailing this man a dictionary, I'm not really sure where we go here because copy and original are really common terms and they are not synonymous. And I was like, so basically, even when we meet the law, he's going to try to reject the form. So they threatened to, ah, they never quite crossed the line into threatening to sue. But I do like to poke at people who are suppressing the votes. I was like, I mean, they're free to come arrest me. They can send the Texas Rangers. I live in San Francisco. Have fun. And they wouldn't, of course. But, you know, we turned off our fax solution and we just went back to like, okay, I guess we'll sue you. And this just shows that they do not even care about their own laws, because if you adhere to their laws, but use this to increase voter registration rates, they lose their minds. Um, So that that's a fun, fun Texas story. And, you know, we'll be back. We'll turn it back on again. And Texas can threaten to sue us. And it's like, go for it. I've lost track of how many times states have threatened to sue us, and oddly, they never actually sue. We do sue them, however. We're suing Georgia and Kansas right now. And the reason it's important and the reason I wanted to share that is just to, to, to point out how there's always a moving goalpost, even when you meet the requirements, because the point is, is suppression. So there's always going to be a goalpost to move, and there will always be people like you to jump on the goalpost and shake the hell out of it. So... That's appreciated. Did we have any more comments or questions, Athena? Uh, We have some general comments. One just saying that we need to remember that our elective officials work for us. So this idea that we could send postcards to officials as well in terms of how we'd like to have them vote in terms of um, bills and legislations across their desk and to just get the word out that we can continue to contact your local state, federal local offices with the the same kind of work that the the bot is doing and getting the message out. That's about it. Pretty quiet. We had somebody who also just came upon us. So we're glad that our audience is growing week by week. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Deborah, so much for the wealth of information, timely information that we're having right now. We'd like to start with you before we say our goodbyes and let us know where you can be found and put a spotlight on on the organization of your choice. The organization of my choice would be Mississippi Votes. They do amazing work in the state that is actually like the heart of the civil rights movement. Mississippi is so diverse. It should be a swing state. And that's one of the groups that I personally donate to and I donate every month. And of course, my organization, Vote America, can volunteer with us, can give us some of your hard-earned money. There are so many great groups to support. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't be a stranger. We can't wait to have you back. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. We try to keep it fun. A little fun. Christine, hello. Hello. What do you have your eye on this week? (laughs) I want to highlight an org uh, that I follow closely for information specifically on Asian Americans mobilizing the vote, and it is Asian and Pacific Islander America Vote, APIAVote.org. They're a really great organization with a 
bunch of different information. And, you know, for those that aren't Asian American, but have Asian American friends in your life, what I would love to see is this cross-pollination of folks just pulling us in because that narrative of voter apathy aside, which I love Deborah's framing of it, it's not real and it is self-defeating. We would love to see us included now that we are energized <laughs> and we are ready to go. So that that's what I would love to um, see happen. Thanks. Thank you so much. Hello, Joe. Hi. I'd like to just say that all these organizations that we've talked about up until now are, are wonderful and everyone should get in, get involved as much as possible because nothing will change these things that states and localities are doing except federal government legislation and federal government legislation won't happen until people in localities and people across the country pressure the federal government. The 1965 Voting Rights Act did that, and we need we not only need another one, but it has to start from the ground up. Thank you so much. And last but not least, Athena. Hi, I would second uh, Christine's APIA vote. Um, I support that group as well. Um, second to that, I would suggest a API fund, which is the Civic Engagement Fund that'll also assist galvanating and energizing uh, voters uh, in your local AAPI community. But um, also building off of what the fantastic organization that Deborah mentioned, Mississippi Votes, I would also refer you to MOVE Texas. MOVE Texas is doing a lot to also mobilize, organize a vote and empower Latinx voters in Texas. And Texas is a state that could use all the help that they can get. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to the panel. Thank you again, Deborah Cleaver. Thank you, Susan Stutz, who's not with us this week, but we'll be back next week when we discuss Planned Parenthood. Very excited about that episode. If you want to learn more about ResistBot, whether you want to start your own petition, if you want to volunteer with us, everyone on this show today was a volunteer. So if you want to learn more about volunteering with ResistBot, go to resist.bot. You can learn about volunteering. You can donate. You can learn more about petitions. You can start your own petition. Uh, Athena brought out three great petitions that really could use your support. So jump on one of those, start a new one, get engaged. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to us on Twitch or YouTube. The podcast will be up tomorrow. We look forward to all of you downloading and subscribing, sharing with your friends, and give us a review. That'll be all. We will see you next Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern. And until then, you have a great week. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple. iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message ResistBot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating powerful public policy or voter turnout campaigns. And we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started.
ResistBot is a non-profit social welfare company built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. Regular contributors include Melanie Dion, Athena Foulet, Susan Stutz, Dr. Joseph Kuhill, and Scott McTaggart. Thank you for listening.